1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us today. I just got off the Skype phone with John Protevi to talk about his new book, Life, War, Earth, Deleuze and the Sciences. This came out in 2013 with the University of Minnesota Press. Now, I was particularly excited to talk with John about this book because I think um, this is kind of one of the things that really excites me about doing these interviews for NBSTS is the opportunity to bring to an STS-interested audience the kinds of books that might not otherwise come explicitly onto the radar. And I think this is one of those books. um, And it's a really exciting book for me. So, in this book, um, what John does is he collects a number of different pieces together under the umbrella of creating a conversation and a dialogue between the sciences, broadly speaking, uh, historical materials on warfare, on the on early Aegean societies, and work by and work that engages with Deleuze. And so, what you have here is a model of really creative and very, very transdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary reading practices in the service of creating very focused arguments that I think can really help us as science studies scholars articulate or find a way to articulate new approaches to thinking about individuals versus individuation, to thinking about process and how to reframe stories about uh, interacting levels of entities that we write our stories about in terms of process rather than assuming coherent, fixed, unchanging entities. It's a story or a set of stories rather that I think is really germinal and really generative also for historians in particular, because there's a lot that's happening here, and you'll hear this in the course of the interview, that really opens up different ways of thinking about articulating positions on and writing stories with space and time. And so there's a lot of exciting stuff in the book. We only really scratched the surface. There's a whole part of the book that we um, didn't really have a chance to talk about. Um, But I will really direct you to, if you're interested in um, the possibilities that are opened up by bringing continental philosophy and and Deleuze in particular to how we understand and work with and work on the sciences, to really go out and find a copy of the book and spend some time with it because it's just, uh, it's wonderfully rich. It rewards close relationships reading. And I think it's really exciting. So thanks very much for listening. I really um, had a great time uh, talking with John and I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm here today to talk with John Protevi about his new book, Life, War, Earth, Deleuze and the Sciences. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, John, and thanks very much for both making the time to talk with me and also for such an inspiring book. As I uh, mentioned, I think while we were getting set up, I think there's a lot here um, that scholars and people interested in STS can really benefit from, and I'm really excited to have the chance to talk to you about it today. So thank you for being here.
0: Well, thank you, Carla. It's very flattering to be asked, and um, I'm always glad to, uh, to try to spread the word. So uh, thanks for asking me. Great. So, John,
1: could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying just a little bit about your background, and specifically, how did you come to work on Deleuze?
0: Well, um, I am a continental philosopher, which in the 1980s uh, meant uh, Heidegger and Derrida, and Levinas and sort of phenomenology or post-phenomenology people. And then I went on a postdoc to the University of Warwick in the mid-90s and I met some Deleuze people. And that was very exciting to me because one of the things that I had felt a little frustrated with in my Deleuze, in my Derrida and Heidegger work is that I really liked the notion of difference and differential ontology, not necessarily so much in the terms of like different politics or different identity politics or anything like that, but in this notion that's a sort of anti-foundationalist notion that uh, reality is networked, differential, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So when I ran into the Deleuzeans, I found that they had the same kind of ontology that there's really there aren't foundational centers, but there are networks that at certain points in the relation of the terms of the network, the processes of the network, will crystallize. And that's a big Delusian, um metaphor that he gets, or an image that he gets from a French philosopher named Joubert Simondon. And so I thought that was really great because then it enabled me to uh, read some science because I'd always loved science. Back Way back in undergraduate days, I was a, a physical education major just as it was starting to turn into exercise physiology, kinesiology, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh I didn't take that path, but um I did end up as a philosopher. One of the primary things that turned me into a philosopher was reading Plato's Republic and the discussion of the physical training of the guardians. Mm. So there was Plato uh being able to bring Politics and physical training together. And so I was that behind in the back of my mind, that was always a really motivating thing. So then when I got to Deleuze, I said, Oh wow, politics, science, differential training, and bodies. So that's really clicked for me. Um, then one other uh, autobiographical note or biographical note I met my wife uh, in the mid 90s here at LSU. And it turns out that one of her best friends from graduate school is someone named Amy Cohen. And if you're listening, hi, Amy. Uh, She lives in Paris, and uh, she was married to, is the widow of uh, a great, great philosopher and scientist named Francisco Varela. I'm sure all all your listeners know about and so I actually got to meet Francisco. Uh, uh Amy and Kate and I are Amy and Kate are really good friends, and so we see her a lot. And that got me specifically reading the inactive uh philosophers of the, the philosophy and cognitive science line, uh Evan Thompson, Alpha Noah, Andy Clark, all these guys. And uh I met them via the network around uh, Francisco. They're really great, welcoming people. Uh, They really have supported me in this, trying to put French philosophy or post-structuralist French philosophy together with biology and cognitive science. So I I want to give them, give them a shout out too, because they've been uh, really supportive. Not that they agree with everything I say, but they want to hear about it. So that's a, that's a really nice uh, thing. So, um, so a number of different strains. Uh, so there's the Plato way back when. There is the differential ontology from Haidt and Gerdau. There's the Dula's science, politics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then the uh, biographical accident that got me reading the embodied mind. So when I read the embodied mind, people, I thought, well, hell, you know, they're using uh, phenomenology. And so Heidegger, Husserl, Merleau-Ponty are some of their main reference points. Uh, why don't I see if I can't nudge things along or introduce Deleuze as a post-structuralist, rather than a phenomenologist, still within French philosophy, but another with another uh, perspective. Why can't – let me see if I can create a machine that would uh, include uh, his conceptuality in the mix with the concepts and uh, techniques that the um, that those other people uh, have—that is embodied mind and differential ontology. So that brought it all together. And then, oddly enough, I've, as a uh, left-wing academic pacifist, uh, I've had a long fascination with military training. How do people actually? Uh, uh, to kill other people. So it turns out, it's not—it's not just uh, controlling a natural urge to kill people, which you might get from some sort of Hobbesian perspective. In fact, military training usually involves lots of uh, ways of enabling killing behavior, rather than controlling a natural wild killing behavior. You don't have to enable it. You have to get people over hesitations and thresholds. So that that was fascinating for me, and that's part of the early part of Life or Earth was exploring the um, uh, exploring that uh, that that uh, interest of mine. Because there, you see a lot of these questions uh, come together. You see politics, you see bodily training, cognitive science, biology, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and uh, all coming together. And so I thought that one of the ways that that's I was brought uh, to that question. Uh, Now, this book is a follow-up to a 2009 book called Political Affect. And there I did some case studies. So I did the Columbine case study, which is actually um, part of it is uh, the basis for Chapter 2. Then I did uh, here, then I did a a chapter on Katrina, uh, Hurricane Katrina, and a chapter on Terry So that methodology of case studies I've brought over a little bit into this, into this book. It's the idea of being that as you delve into a concrete event, you can come up with uh, what was calls a multiplicity. That is a set of interacting processes that come together whose rhythms or whose, uh, um, well, whose rhythms, let's say, uh, will hit a particular threshold and then trigger a qualitative change. So, you know, uh, crystallization is a nice image for that. Uh, but it's more obviously more complicated in the uh, psychological and social realms. But that idea of a differential field that at a particular point mm-hmm. coalesces and shifts qualitative behavior patterns of the system. Uh, so, I, I, I try to, to look at that in the warfare pieces and then uh, try to. Uh, also then take that over to kind of science and biology later in the the book.
1: Well, great. A lot of the things that you've brought up um, take us right into aspects of the chapters that we'll talk about and elements Mm -hmm. of the book that are really important. So you mentioned um, things like rhythm and physical training and military training, warfare, the work of Varela, the idea of the embodied mind, Mm -hmm. crystallization, Mm -hmm. Simondon. For listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book, I just mentioned this um, and to kind of point these out because these are all um, foci of different chapters of the book that while they might seem right now, you know, nine minutes in, you know, what do they have to do with each other? They have a lot to do with each other. And one of the things I think we'll see over the course of the conversation is together these topics that might seem very different are woven together into a very coherent and a very rich system, um, if not a system, a, a kind of set of ideas that I think um, are very resonant with one another. So as you've mentioned, um, already, you've already talked a little bit about how you came to uh, the kind of set of issues that are um, that we're going to be talking about in this particular book. And what we'll see throughout the book and throughout the conversation is that bringing Deleuze into the mix, and I think you sort of explicitly use that tr- uh, phrase yes, at one point.
0: Yes, that's it, chapter title. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. It allows us to create dialogues among kind of kinds of ideas, groups of people that otherwise might not come into conversation. So one of the big contributions that the book makes um, right at the outset is to bring philosophers and scientists into new kinds of conversations. But one of the reasons, and I, uh, already mentioned this a little bit, that I'm very excited to bring this to an STS audience is that I think there's also an opportunity to bring um, scholars who work on science studies from the humanities and social sciences into the conversation as well in really exciting ways. So with that in mind, what we'll do is we won't hit on all of the individual chapters. It's it's We could spend an hour easily on any one of them. So what I'll do over the next time that we have is I'll try to pick out some of the moments from the parts of the book that um, seem most at the heart of the book, but that also might speak um, most clearly to the kind of STS readership that I think could really benefit from this and might not otherwise immediately come to Deleuze and this work. So you've mentioned the genesis of this book, um, and you mentioned it in the book as well as being related to some of the work that you've done in your earlier book, Political Affect. And early in the book, one of the ways um, that you talk about this project and its relation to the previous project is in terms of, or at least in terms that I um, read as, a careful attention to the possibilities of thinking with scale, Scale is something that's mm-hmm. it's very important, right, to all the chapters. And as you mentioned early in the book, this is also something that was featured in your previous book. Now, because I think this attention to scale is could really be transformative for science studies more broadly and is really important potentially to the kind of work that STS scholars are doing, I'd like to open up, if you wouldn't mind, by talking a little bit about this. So, could you start us off by speaking a little bit to, or a lot of it? Um, yeah, as you're interested to the issue of scale in what way is your work with scale here in the context of this book importantly different um, from perhaps what other scholars have done with this kind of material and in what ways are you most excited and most energized about the ideas of scale on whatever levels you want to talk about um, as they shape what's happening here in the book
0: good thank you that's a great question Um... I would say, on a kind of meta level, just to begin, one of my motivations was to uh, disabuse people of the idea that continental philosophers are only interested in literature and analytic philosophers. Uh, are all uh, uh, literature and politics, and analytic philosophers are only interested in science and not politics, and I think that's wrong on both accounts. So what I wanted to try to do was to show that continental philosophers can grapple with and use the resources of continental philosophy to talk about uh, science as it's done in the laboratory and in the journals, but also how it helps us to understand the world that we live in. I am something of a scientific realist i guess (laughs) you know things do uh uh, you know we are able to at least to intervene in natural processes uh, thanks to scientific endeavors uh and on the other hand uh I, I, i think it's uh wrong on the part of my continental philosophy colleagues to think that analytic philosophers aren't politically engaged uh and so on and so forth so i wanted to try to bring science and politics together In that way. So that's not quite a scale issue, but maybe a meta issue about the sociology of politics, of of philosophy, or meta philosophy. So that was one uh, uh, intervention. Now, the question of scale is is a great one. I mean, in Political Affect, and I think in this book as well, I use the formulation of above, below, and alongside the subject. Mm -hmm. So I want to, and I don't want to, to. be dogmatically uh, continental and say the subject is dead. No one should ever talk about the subject anymore. Uh, but I do want to say, look, we've got all this amazing science, uh, neuroscience and um, uh, cognitive psychology that takes us below the subjective level to uh, mechanisms and, uh, you know, fast-moving brain stuff. Uh, so we should be able to take it, a uh, uh, Pay attention to that. So in translating that in terms of scale, we would have fast, uh, fast temporal scales and small spatial scales. Then above the uh, subject, I think we have uh, you know so long temporal scales and uh, large spatial scales. We're talking about what used to be you know what we could talk about as social processes. Now, what's interesting to, for me, though, uh, and then we have the, alongside. With be what we talk about in terms of uh, extended mind, which is kind of really um, uh, kind of a me- mesoscale, right? We're talking about people and their computers. It's not quite exactly what extended mind says, but it's it's close enough. So we have alongside above and below. but What I think happens is what we would like to be able to uh, investigate is the way in which large-scale social processes interact with and are dependent upon the small-scale processes of the formation of um, our uh, psychological uh, habits and modules and so on and so forth. So the idea there is that philosophers are starting to Uh, come to grips with developmental psychology, as well as with gender and racial, different forms of gender and racial embodiment. So I think that that's uh, one of the things that uh, French theory and critical social theory can help us to talk about is to disabuse us of the notion of the human subject or the subject, start talking about a multiplicity of subjects uh, as well as being, trying to be able to talk about how we can create political categories that can help us talk about types of embodiment. Now, you can never do that. You always have to be really careful with that because you can't, uh, at any one level, depending on any one uh Research question you have, you can create more or less abstract or or clunky social categories to go with. Uh, So, but you know, the danger of that is that if you keep going too far idiosyncratically, you get to a sort of cliched. You know, uh, you know uh, uh, identity politics. As a 59-year-old uh, upper, you know, lower middle class white male from suburban Philadelphia, uh, you know, of Irish and Italian ancestry, you can't talk to my experience. How dare you call an epic? Try to talk to me. Like, that's crazy. There's no, there's no politics there at all. On the other hand, we can't just say, you know, uh, the human being or even male and female brains are different in XYZ. That's where I think the neurofeminists have been able to show us quite a lot. of If you actually get into their critiques of the methodology of a lot of gendered neuroscience, yeah, they, I think they have a lot of very interesting pieces in so anyway, so that's kind of social scale, if you will. What are the granularity of the social categories that we use, both in discussing politics, but also in designing experiments? Uh, then, then that question of uh, development, which is a kind of, uh, we have really fast scales for our brain firing. And then we have really long scales, let's say, for our social practices. And then we have the immediate uh, developmental ontogenetic scale for kids. Right? You know, it's a 10-year scale. It's not, you know, 40 or 50 or 60 years of feminist activism. Right? That's a long social scale. And it's certainly not nanoseconds of brain fire. Uh, but that's another scale that we need to, uh, I think, that. We can talk about, and that's been really encouraging to see philosophers turning to questions of child development more so in the last 10 or 15 years than, than I remember, at least back in the 80s.
1: Great. Thank you so much. And there's a whole lot more that we could talk about uh, with regard to this. And we'll talk about, I think, different elements of it um, over the course of the rest of the conversation. But one of mm-hmm. the things that's really um, crucial to understanding, at least, again, from my perspective, what's going on in terms of the, the, the multiplicity of scales and the mm-hmm. multiplicity of scales at the same time throughout the book, is understanding what's happening here in terms of a philosophy of process. Mm-hmm. Now, this is really key. It's it may seem really kind of um, fundamental or elementary to what's happening here in the book, um, but it's I think really important as a move to bring to the attention again of an STS audience because we tend not to think in terms of philosophies of process. We tend to be, um, you know, talking about ontology but talking about objects and identities mm-hmm. as if they're already formed. Mm-hmm. One of the really core um, concepts and forming all of the chapters or perhaps almost all of the chapters of the book is a focus on process, particularly as it is embodied through individuation. So, um, because this is so important um, to so much of what's going on, and because it also speaks to the ways that uh, Simondon and his ideas of mm-hmm. crystallization, as you've mentioned, are informing yeah. Deleuze, and thus you know creating one pathway into um, the sciences as you're creating mm-hmm. that dialogue here, could you say a little bit? And I know this is a completely unreasonable question. No. On that, but What can you say a little bit about? But no. could you? Um, what is important for listeners to understand about individuation for a listener who has never read? Simondon and has never heard this word, in order to understand the kind of work that you're doing in the book with individuation?
0: Great, great. No, great question. Um, well, uh, Simondon is a French philosopher of the 50s uh, and 60s who um, uh, recalled this uh, medieval uh, Western European Christian uh, f- philosophical question of individuation and wanted to be able to approach it on the uh, physical, biological, social, and psychological levels. And his uh, insight was that prior to individuation, we have an undifferentiated field. Right? So that's what—that's why crystallization is the key element. There are there are no little crystals waiting to expand, right? It's in a super-saturated field, if I have physics, right? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, at particular thresholds, you get the formation of crystals. And so that's a, I think that's a, uh, uh, a metaphor. Uh, now, what Deleuze wants to do, especially in his collaboration with Guattari, Deleuze and Guattari, uh, we'll look at, tendencies towards uh, stasis and reproductibility, and tendencies to or potentials for uh, change and fluidity. He is not a cliched postmodernist who is in favor a priori of flow or change. He's very careful, I think, to say that in any one particular situation, you're going to find... Uh, Tendencies towards reproduction and tendencies towards difference. So he puts a difference in repetition. And the idea is to carefully analyze the, uh, the, the situation and, and to identify which of those uh, tendencies are stronger or weaker and to see what, on, on what side you want to intervene. So uh, an easy way to talk about that, I think, another uh, easier we to talk about that in terms of habits for people. When we talk about individuation of a, of a person, we talk about what, what is the set of habits that make you who you are. What's your individuality? And that's usually a set of, of habits, that is, processes, that uh, repeat in certain intervals, certain rhythms. It's a general problem we come back to. Uh, and so you end up notoriously as adults, getting up at the same time, having the same coffee, reading the same newspaper, et cetera, et cetera. Now, on the one hand, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's really great, right? Because you don't have to waste a lot of brain power in the morning when you're tired. <laughs> you stumble downstairs and turn on the coffee machine, right? Uh, so, you know, you, uh, we also don't need to, uh, as uh, normal able-bodied adults, don't need to, and this brings up the whole question of disability theory, which I think is the uh, one of the biggest and most important things that have come to mainstream philosophical attention in the last 10 or 15 years. But in any event, uh, uh, I don't mean to think about walking, whereas it was a real concentration struggle when I was a kid that put one foot in front of the other. So a habit can free you from routine and enable your mind to go elsewhere. I mean, that's really great stuff. On the other hand, it can trap you. We can be trapped in a rut, so on and so forth. So in analyzing your individuation patterns, you know, uh, you may, in also in encountering other people, having demands placed on you, et cetera, et cetera, there might be the chance for you to shake some things up and develop new habits, new patterns. A cliche, you take a yoga class because your shoulder hurts. <laughs> Uh, and then you change your body patterns so, so, so. now that sounds kind of bougie a, a lifestyle individual individualism rather than sophisticated philosophical individuation questions but I think that the, uh, the um, it's a it's a metaphor or an image of uh, analyzing your life to see where habits are helping you and where you might stand to uh, get a little more flexibility in your bodily patterns or in, in your mental patterns, uh, and that is—that's um, really what he's after. It's not the you know, um, uh, other It can look, and obviously, those things are. Let's put it this way: the range of freedom that people have to explore different patterns is heavily constrained by your subject position race class and gender and, you know, et cetera, markers I, I love that phrase etc at the end of because at the end of uh, gender trouble truth uh, butler says well there's always an embarrassed etc when you try to list up your lines of categories right there's gender race class religion uh, you know and you, you can never finish them right there's, it's always the embarrassed etc so that's yeah. <laughs> That's uh, on the, uh, that has to be on the agenda too, I think. Great. There's a kind of philosophical, uh, Deleuzean technical point about the uh, a multiplicity can never be finally once and for all defined. There's always a fringe where you can add one more, add one more uh, dimension to the discussion. So for instance, when I did uh, the Katrina agenda, I did history of slavery. I did sugar as a form of solar energy. I did wind and wave patterns in the Atlantic as it related to the Middle Passage in slavery. I did the Haitian Revolution and its relationship to, and I did I know twenty of these things. Right, the Mississippi River, it's a, the destruction of the swamps, such as thinking, but I could have done a twenty-first. Mm-hmm. or 22nd, or 23rd. There was an embarrassed et cetera at the end of my Katrina chapter. There has to be. And I think there's that's you can actually make an in-principle ontological point about that, uh, which leads Deleuze not just to be a uh, process philosopher, but at the limit, to also to edge towards the holism question. Uh, okay, but to, to come back to the process, yes, there's... Um, Uh, Always been an undercurrent of people who want to have time uh, as the basic ontological category versus those people who want to have substance and accident be the the basic uh, ontological category. And Deleuze uh, firmly fits, I believe, in the um, process uh, side of things, Uh, which you get in uh, in brain science, right? People talk about, well, should we use brain states or should we use. uh, the neuro firing patterns, what should be our basic ontological category for understanding the brain. Ah. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of stuff involved there.
1: Yeah, and this continues to be important throughout the book and so after an introduction just to kind of guide us um, forward since you mentioned water I want to kind of come to water but Mm -hmm. I will mention for listeners that after um, this is going to be one of many cases in which I'm just going to have to blitz through a really fascinating chapter but I want to signal that it's there. You mentioned the work of Varela and how important the work of Varela is at the beginning of our conversation so I just want to mark for listeners there's also another introduction to the book that looks specifically at um, the work of Francis. Francisco Varela in terms of bodies, politic, the idea Mm -hmm. of bodies politic. Mm -hmm. Um, so we can bring that in a little bit later if you want, but I, um, in order to get to the military training. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll sort of move past that now, but I do want to signal that because especially those listeners interested in the history and social study of biology and modern mm. biology, there's a lot of material in this book that pertains to that, that's all about that, that informs it. And the second introduction um, is one of the exciting points at which that happens. Thank you. Okay. Um, but so you mentioned water um, and you've mentioned earlier on an interest in uh, military training and military and warfare. And part Part one of the book really takes us into some fascinating points of entry into these um, into this constellation of ideas. So this approach or this part of the book looks at how a Deleuzian approach can inform how we think about war and military training and all kinds of other things that flow from this, and we'll see that in a moment. After a chapter that introduces the notion of geo, hydro, solar, biotechno politics.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> an- well that's the multiplicity. There's exact- always another Dimension. Right, and I could and have I... added uh a... Uh, another dimension. be embarrassed, know. et cetera. So, exactly. exactly.
1: And and really, exactly. and I'll mention this is, it sounds like a really long word and it, it mm-hmm. reads like, but it really is, I think, um, uh, as much as anything else, a signal to us to think on these multiple scales at the same time and thinking multiplicity. And so it's a really important way of bringing in, um, as you put it, sort of geo history and hydroontology mm-hmm. in this sense yes. into mm-hmm. kinds of conversations that we might yeah. not otherwise integrate um,
0: these yeah, ways of thank thinking. Thank
1: So so after that, we come to a pair of chapters that look in turn at contemporary and then ancient forms of warfare, specifically bringing us into the importance of a kind of what you call a political physiology approach to military training in the contemporary context, and then moving us into a a reading of an ancient context of warfare and the ways that that also speaks to these issues. So could you then um, open up in or open us out into this part of the book? by talking about this interest in military training as it shapes what's going on here and maybe highlighting some of, for you, the most important aspects of these couple of chapters and the kind of work that it's doing in the larger context of the project of the book.
0: Uh, Good, thank you. The military training is really uh, interesting and what I think it has direct political implications. The One question is, does the state exist to restrain, naturally, violent people who otherwise would go around killing each other? In other words, what keeps people from killing each other? The presence of the cops. Or is it that, and it turns out, I think, that military training shows that, in fact, the state has to do a lot of preparation and enabling of ordinary folks to actually uh, pull the trigger on the battlefield. There uh, was not really very good compliance with battlefield orders uh, during uh, World War II, uh, pretty low rates of firing, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, I'm sure the no, American military has reformed its training uh, procedures uh, with, with that in mind. So that's an interesting uh, flip for me. And so questions of human nature come up there, I think. Uh, Then uh, when we uh, go back to the uh, ancient uh, warfare, what we see is a variety of uh, uh, group formations and social formations that uh, warfare uh, um, not breaks down into, but is articulated in. So I went and did some reading in uh, ancient uh, uh, history. And I became fascinated by the use of music to accompany the, the warriors, They're actually accompanying the soldiers. So there are um, a number of passages in which people testified to the way the phalanx, which is the infantry, uh, uh, well, the infantry phalanx, <laughs> would march with a drummer. Right? And this would Enable a sort of group bonding effect that would bring people to the front of the battle, and then they would have the kind of melee there. Uh, then there was this question uh, also of the rhythm of the rowers in the ancient Greek warships. So those are the, the triremes. Now, one of the theses about ancient Greek democracy is that the democrat or the Citizenship uh, 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 lower level has to always be set at the most effective military, uh, uh, um, like the most effective military force. <laughs> so as when it's cavalry, then it's people on horses; they get to be citizens. To discuss when it's the phalanx, then there's people who can afford armor, right? So that's there tend to be small farmers and so on and so forth. But when the warship. Becomes an important thing, then it's the people who can row. And they end up being sort of urban artisans. So there's a whole field of social and political and economic uh, um, uh, uh, factors that have to be understood in order to understand uh, you know, ancient uh, Greek warfare. So one of the most interesting things that I read was a uh, Marxist historian named G.E.M. de Saint Writing in the 60s and 70s, uh, who theorized that the Athenian uh, Empire of the 5th century BCE was uh, pushed in order to protect the into the Aegean in order to protect the grain shipments that come down from the Black Sea. So it turns out that a row ship, a rowing ship, a, 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 a warship needs to stop every 10 or 15 miles to refuel their energy source. What is their energy source? the muscles of the rowers. How do you refuel the muscles of the rowers? You give them food and drink and a night's rest. So just the way in which the U.S. Army today is constrained by the uh, ability to uh, uh, stop and get uh, diesel fuel into their ships, the Greek uh, rowing, or the Greek uh, navy, the Athenian navy, needed a set of uh, friendly ports in order to refuel the energy source of their warships. Um, so I found that was a fascinating uh, example of the way in which, below the level of the subject, you get this rhythmic group bonding effect of the rowing and the chanting and the singing. Alongside the subjects, right, you have the entire machine of the rowing ship. And then above it, you get this political economy necessity of securing the uh, grain roots to feed the people of Athens, and to secure that, you need... A naval presence, but that naval presence is constrained by the muscular capacity of the ropes. So I thought that was a really for me when I came together. That was really exciting to see all those different scales that we talked about come together in this one case study of the of the Athenian uh, stuff. Now I haven't seen um, <laughs> I haven't seen the three hundred the movie three hundred uh, <laughs> sequel, but I, I think it's about Battle of Salvas, uh, a naval battle. So I suppose I should go see that. But, uh, but yes, yeah, so. So
1: one of the really interesting, if I could just jump in, um, the Mm -hmm. interesting, I think, conceptual points that comes out of this, that's also something I want to mark for, um, especially for an STS audience, Mm -hmm. is that um, one of the phrase frames in which you discuss these phenomena and how to perhaps understand and reframe our understanding of these phenomena by bringing together philosophy and neuroscience and ancient history into a common conversation, is by talking about affect, the importance Mm -hmm. of affect, and specifically. Mm -hmm. Locating affect in what you call geobiotechno-effective assemblages, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and I, I think this is a really important point here. Did you want to talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, affect has been a term that the uh, critical social uh, theory people have picked up in the last ten years or so, at least. And there does there seems to be two main sources of that. Uh, one is um, a kind of Deleuzian and Spinozist idea that affect is more kind of environmental; it's like the mood of a room, that kind of thing. And another being a more um, uh, neurological. Uh, approach uh, the uh, Sylvan Tompkins, being often cited as one of the people for critical social theory, but we also have a field now of affective uh, neuroscience uh, led by people like Damasio and Punksep and uh, these guys, mm-hmm. Joseph LeDoux, so on and so forth. So probably some names that your listeners will be uh, aware of. <laughs> so uh, what uh, what I was well, what I'm after in the terms of political physiology or something like that, or the geo biotechno affective, is that there are, in meeting the challenges of warfare, there is a heavy affective or emotional component that the individual soldiers have to meet. Armies have been aware of this for a long time, and hence their training. So certainly there are some desensitization uh, factors involved, you know, once you've been in battle for a while. But on the other hand, you know, you're more able to kill, especially alongside your your brothers. On the other hand, there are exhaustion and fatigue uh, issues, uh, shell shock or PTSD or any of those kind of things. So uh, there's a kind of range. Uh, You need the training, but too much exposure to warfare is going to just fry the nervous systems or the affective systems of the soldiers. (laughs) Uh, And so that's uh, that's actually what the theory of interrogational torture is about. Stress, the nervous systems, emotional psychological states of the uh, people you're interrogating hoping to Release some sort of um, this is one of the theories, hoping to release some sort of animal survival instinct so that they'll spill the beans. Um, uh, so, I, I haven't yet done uh, specific work on interrogational torture or and or the um, supposed theories that the theories that supposedly support the use of interrogational torture. I have heard that many people. Experts in the field think it doesn't work. You don't really get actionable intelligence. But in anyway, it's it's in that same sort of thing of a, like a political affect, a political uh, training system aimed at the sub subjective mm-hmm. neurological uh, 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 neurological patterns uh, of the uh, of the people being the people in question other soldiers or uh, uh, tortured people, tortured people.
1: And, and for listeners um, who are particularly interested in this, um, or in what we might consider to be more kind of cognitive elements of what's mm-hmm. going on here, there's an entire part of the book that strictly, um, in the interest of time, we won't have a chance to talk much about, but that really follows through and, and focuses on um, this kind of co-creation of brain and body and looks mm-hmm. at cognitive science in particular. So there are four chapters here that go into different aspects of this, all from um, a very um, an approach in inspired by a Deleuzean informing of what's going on that includes, um, just to kind of mark this for listeners who are interested, a treatment of um, Gabrielle Giffords and then looking at the idea of the socially invaded mind, a treatment of affect in Occupy Wall Street, in addition to other more specialized interventions into particular um, works and particular case studies in cognitive science. And so I'll just sort of mark that because it's a really exciting part of the book that if we had another couple of. Hours. We've been going through (laughs) in great detail. Um, But but what I wanted to do is kind of bring us from part one to part three of the book by introducing something that comes up really at the end of part one, but that then goes on to occupy a central role in the third part of the book when you turn to biology. And that's the idea of eco, devo, evo. Mm -hmm. So this comes out of an insight in the first part of the book when you're talking about these military contexts and military training and all of the things that you've just been, I think really helpfully um, elaborating for us, an idea that we don't, as you put it here, genetically inherit a subject, but instead we inherit a potential to develop a subject when it's called forth, again, as you put it here, by cultural practices. And this is informed by this idea of eco Devo Evo. So I'm just going to open this up right here and ask you: uh, Can you introduce for us this idea of Eco Devo Evo? And the ordering there is really important. It's not Evo Devo, which some um, historians of the life sciences may be more familiar with. It's Eco Devo Evo. So what's going on here? Um, what's your What does this idea mean, and how is it important to you in this part of the book?
0: Good, thank you. Um, it's that 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 particular phrase. Um, uh, is uh, developed, uh, I believe, by someone named Gilbert. Um, and I'm sorry, I would have to look up the exact reference, but, okay. so I, I, I apologize to Professor no, no, no. Gilbert. Um, but uh, I, I used it in, uh, re- in thinking about a, a book that is really one of the most difficult and important books that I've read in my career, and that's Mary Jane West Everhard. Developmental Plasticity and Evolution, Oxford 2003. It teeters on the edge of uh, Lamarckianism, uh, neo-Lamarckianism as uh, championed by Jablonka and Lamb. She denies that she's a Lamarckian, so we have to let Sylvester heart uh, define herself, I think. But it's a really, really challenging and important uh, thing. So her basic idea is that uh, development leads the way so that genes are followers and not leaders in evolution. So what you'll often talk about is the eco part is there's some sort of uh, uh, change in the ecological environment of a set of organisms uh, such that the Development is pushed in one direction or another, and if that leads to an adaptive, uh, you know, sort of adaptive advantage, that can later be uh, uh, coded uh, in DNA of successive generations, and she calls that genetic accommodation. Now, it's very complicated stuff, as to do with the Baldwin effect, and there's a lot of really uh, careful stuff that she looks at. And I try to do my best there to show to zero in on particular phrase what she uh, talks about as uh, unexpressed genetic variation. So the idea is that these uh, evolutionary or ecological challenges will uh, push an organism to tap into genetic variation that had previously been unexpressed and use that in uh, developing a new uh, development in new development new developmental patterns Uh, and then um, so there's there's two terms that a lot of my book carefully enough distinguishes but developmental plasticity and phenotypic plasticity but in any event uh, so I, I looked at that and I said well unexpressed genetic variation okay so, what does that mean? Well, then we have to get into the idea that uh, in terms of the hereditary gene as DNA sequences, uh, they are used as resources by cell who which, I guess not who <laughs> which um, uh, concoct uh, different recipes, you know you know at the uh, editing and splicing process on the way down to the ribosome. There's a number of very complicated processes with uh, transfer and, and, uh, MRA, RNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm obsessed with guns. Uh, <laughs> transfer uh, RNA and messenger RNA, very complicated stuff. I worked that out in with the help of Fox killer. But um, in any event, it does seem that you don't really know well, you have to distinguish between the hereditary gene and the uh, protein-producing gene, which is what happens at the at the ribosome. But there's a lot of uh, pot- potentials there to uh, to concoct a different recipe and pull down different parts of the uh, 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 DNA string in order to uh, uh, produce a uh, animal. RNA string at the ribosome and produce different proteins, and the proteins themselves can fold, and so on and so forth. So, I thought, well, Deleuze's main ontological concept is what he calls the virtual. Mm -hmm. and The virtual is a set of differences, differential processes that are undifferentiated in themselves, but allow for and produce individuation, Right. So go back one more time to that uh, Simondon uh, crystallization metaphor. There are no small crystals, right? There are gradients, thresholds, et etc., et cetera, which when triggered produce, you know, individuated crystals. So I tried to think that in a much more highly dimensional, multi-astronomically dimensional uh, space of the um, uh, genome and the, uh, the cell and try to see what uh, that unexpressed genetic variation in Eberhardt's terms could be seen uh, in terms of the versus virtual. That is, you don't know until after you've produced them what the genome is um, is uh, capable of. So the it's, it's not that there's a little recipe of for a particular protein that's waiting in the DNA strand. I don't think that's the case. Right? Uh, but the cell's capacities for producing novel combinations uh, mean that, uh, I, I think, mean that the uh, capacities of the genome can be seen as virtual. And so working your way backwards from what's been produced, you can see what was potential. But just staring at the DNA strain, right, you cannot predict what a novel ecological Challenge to an uh, organism will be able to produce. Now that's, I think that's the way I'm reading, or I, that is the way I'm reading West Everhart, and I hope that that's uh, faithful to uh, to her vision. Um, uh, so it's always this kind of experiment on the ground, which produces novel protein streams, novel me- uh, physiological mechanisms, and then if they work, right? Then you can get a selection pressure which will code them back up into the, the genome of the succeeding generations. So you might get some new DNA strings, but the, the, uh, the, the selection of the recipe for the protein at the ribosome by the cells uh, is, not, uh, is not predetermined that would be the the challenge to be able to show that. And that's why I think the Dullesian notion of the uh, the virtual helps. The the virtual, for Dulles, he has this other thing which is really important. The processes of individuation will actualize the virtual, so on and so forth. But then the new conditions created by those actualization processes will affect future iterations of those processes. That is, that will help to shape the uh, uh zones of the virtual uh and i try to work that out in dynamic systems uh, theory terms in terms of uh, uh attractors and bifurcators and basins of attraction and this that and the other thing
1: now, as a um, as a historian, I have to I'm one of the things that really excited me about the book and that you're really bringing out, I think, in describing this part of the book is the way that the book and you're um, you're putting into dialogue of kinds of things that I think historians of science and science studies people um, tend to think about, but not in the kinds of terms that you're bringing them out here with um, kind of conceptual uh, Apparatus, or apparatus, is the wrong word, but you know, but the kind of conceptual <laughs> ground of Deleuze in a way that I think helps think differently the the basic building blocks of, for example, the historian, which is space and time. Mm-hmm. So you've already talked, I think, really beautifully in, in your um, description of what's going on with the West-Eberhard and Deleuze conversation that you're creating just before about the ways that thinking kind of at the same time and moving from these scales, cell, genome subject, you know, development, evolution, environment, all produces a different way of thinking about these phenomena. Um, And we've already talked about uh, the ways that the book is pushing us to think in terms of multiple scales of time. One of the really interesting things, and this is um, one of the last things that I'll ask you, I know I've taken up a lot of your time, that's also happening in this part of the book, though, part three on biology, is you're also giving us, I think, a different way of thinking about that other building block or raw material of historical work, which is space. And so one of the things happening in chapter nine, and again, we could talk about this one chapter (laughs) for an hour. This is a chapter that looks at uh, the work of Evan Thompson, and looks at the idea of mind in life, thinking about it also in terms of process, um, and looks at the idea of among other things, so how, to, how to think about how organisms make sense and sort of mm-hmm. how to translate that into ways of thinking about cognition or thinking beyond cognition and thinking about life and mind. Okay, but the reason I brought this up right now um, is that one of the points that you make here um, coming from, I think, a reading of Deleuze is the importance of the kind of topology that emerges, the kind of thinking of and with space that emerges from looking at this phenomenon. And you talk about the importance of the membrane the spatiality of metabolism Mm -hmm. and the ways that this creates a different kind of topology or really a different way of spatializing um, this kind of biology that's happening here. So because, again, space is so important um, to what we do, could you speak a little bit to this? And this is the last uh, content question that I'll ask you to talk about. What's happening here in terms of membranes, topology, and the spatializing of life um, as it's happening in this part of the book?
0: Uh great. Well uh, yes, um I think that I mean I get a lot of that from Simon Bon uh mm-hmm. and uh also from uh, Evan Thompson and his reading of Hans Jonas. Uh so those are the the people in the play in that particular regard. But I think that uh the go back to Duluz the virtual and the actual, there they are co-dependent <laughs> uh, processes. I mean, you, you don't have you have virtualization and actualization. So you need, if the virtual is pretty temporal and processual, you need uh, existing spatial uh, uh, actualizations to group them to root them, to, to root them. Uh, uh, and so that's uh, that's certainly. Uh, a question that's uh, that sort of ontological question, but if we, if we want to take the notion of membrane past the uh, physical, we can certainly talk. I think in terms of let's say the U.S. border with Mexico. It's a kind of membrane, and we have a um, we have a uh, pressure, economic and political pressures of people. Uh, wanting to cross the membrane uh, mostly in the north direction, but people go south too. And then you have the border patrol as a way of trying to to handle that. So I think there's political questions that we can bring up with regard to how we uh, talk about our uh, spatial and temporal uh, concretization of what's uh, our... uh, our, Body politic in the old-fashioned sense means, Uh, and then I think certainly there are questions about when we talk in psychological terms about how how we're individuated. Um, Yeah, I am who I am because I've been living with my wife for twenty years. Uh, Where is what? What are the uh, processes of individuation and? Dependency. It's kind of the wrong word. Um, support. that a uh, any kind of uh, small scale, just a conversation like we're having, versus a long term, you know, lifelong commitment. How do those things work out? So I think that there are some some resources in the notion of membrane and topology for for questions like that. Okay. Well, John, thank you so much
1: um, for giving us uh, so such a great introduction to the book and so much of your time. Now, um, it sounds like uh, you know, an hour sounds like a lot of time. As we've seen already, it's really not. And there's a ton of the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's an extraordinarily rich work. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to raise or mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become
0: readers? Um, well, uh, I could put in a plug for my new book, I guess, sure. which isn't quite, uh, I don't know if it'll be a trilogy uh, with life, for on earth and political affect, but I'm, I am looking at the question of uh, pro-sociality, which I think is the uh, uh, emotional uh, investment in social patterns. How does that arise? Well, one theory that arises is that you get uh, along with the question of altruism, is you get selective pressures in early uh, pre-state human society formed by warfare that will encourage uh, um, uh, self-sacrifice, so a, a group, and so it has to work at the level of group selection. Uh, and that's all well and good mathematically, but uh, there's a quite strong battle among the anthropologists about whether, in fact, we have any evidence for widespread pre state warfare. We have evidence for pre state violence, people kill each other, but anonymous group warfare, uh, we have evidence for that, and does intergroup chimpanzee violence? have anything to do with what we consider war. And so there's a no-school to that. So I say, well, if we take that no-school, and well, it's not uh, pre-state warfare, uh, uh, then the question is, well, how did we get post-Social? Because I do think that we have people who are invested in social patterns and the altruism question or people who are willing to sacrifice themselves more or less dramatically. You don't have to actually throw yourself on top of a grenade but you do actually also find that too. Um, so that's sort of the next process, project. I think it's going to be a similarly multi-scaled. We're going to talk about long, uh, term, long uh, evolutionary time, but we're also going to talk about the uh, developmental processes for people who are raised in hunter-gatherer societies or forged societies, as they're called now. So I have a number of uh, people that I'm uh, trying to bring together. Uh, I think that Probably the Deleuzean notions will be a little bit more in the background, but I do think I can't help but see the world in terms of interacting differential fields of interacting processes. And so I think the law at multiple scales. So I think that this uh, question of pro sociality, how people are raised to emotionally invest in the social patterns that they find themselves in, Uh, and if it's not war, what, what creates that pressure? Then I think that's uh, uh, that'll be my next project, and I do think it ties together lots of stuff that also ties together my war interest, <laughs> except this time in denying that there was uh, war at a particular time in the history.
1: Well, John, usually my last question is um, what's next for you, but okay, well, I'm well, gonna gonna change. That. no, but, but what I, this actually is great because this gives me an opportunity to ask you something as my final question okay. um, that I don't often ask people, but that seems really um, that I really want to know. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, one of the really exciting things about the book is that you're such a boundary crossing reader, your ability to put kinds of uh works that we might associate with very different contexts and disciplines into dialogue is one of the really exciting and really generative things that's happening here. So as a reader, are there any books or other pieces that you're reading right now that you are especially excited by that you're finding particularly inspiring?
0: Uh, okay, let me, let me make one sociology of uh, the, the academy uh, point about that, what enables me, I think, to read uh, so widely. Uh, and that's that I've spent most of my career in a French department as the lone philosopher, right, French theory person. And so I've had a kind of leeway. My colleagues just sort of smile and nod when I talk to them. <laughs> Some and, of us get that uh, yeah. attitude also. Yeah, exactly. And so that has really given me, and they're, they're wonderfully supported by my colleagues, have been just fantastic. And my dean and my chair, and all that stuff. So, I, 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 if I had been in a philosophy department with a lot of fights between continental and analytic, I don't know whether I would have been able to read a lot of you know, cognitive science as a continental philosopher. It would have been seen as betrayal. So, anyways, that's the meta you know, or the metaphilosophy of the sociology of philosophy, question? But, uh, yes, I am reading uh, Sarah Herdy, uh Mothers and Others. In fact, I teach a class in the fall on evolution and biology and morality. So, we're going to read that. We're going to read uh, Christopher Bohm, Moral Origins, The Evolution of Virtue, Altruism, and Shame, from basic books. And uh, he's looking at the Intra group violence of forager society. So, no one denies that human beings have lots of potentials and act on their potentials for violence. What they do deny is that group, anonymous group, intergroup violence, aka warfare, existed before the state. So, what Baum says is that the rigorous egalitarianism of the uh, foragers is probably due to uh, a, a series of uh, ascending uh, 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 sanctions. Right. So there's ridicule. Right. Who do you think you are? You think you're such a great hunter? You know, you have to share the meat. Uh, then there is kind of shunning or ostracism. Turn your back on the person. Then there's exile, and then. Is- if you're really scared of the people, especially if people have killed other people before and you think that they're a loose cannon or whatever, there's, you know, just plain, straight-up capital punishment. Then, you know, forgers will execute people. So that's an intra-group violence, which enforces the social, uh, you know, the egalitarianism of uh, uh, forger bands. I think that's really exciting. Uh, stuff, then, I have a book by... Uh, um, I keep wanting to say Stephen Fry, but that's, of course, not it. It's uh, Douglas Fry uh, called War, Peace, and Human Nature from Oxford about 2010, 2012. And that's a collection of the technical anthropological ordinance uh, against the National Priesthood War. So those are a few of the ones that uh, I've been looking at and um, lots of, uh, a lot of anthropology and
1: Great. Well, John, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. It's, again, um, I'll just say congratulations on a really fantastic book and one I think that um, deserves a wide readership in STS. So thanks for your time and best of luck with the new
0: project. Well, thank you very much. I'm extremely flattered uh, to be asked and I really appreciate the the time and care that you took in formulating the questions. And uh, and. Uh, uh, Being patient with me as I hem and haw my way through some of the answers. It's
1: a pleasure. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.